Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the Book of Numbers. God had been faithful to the Israelites. In spite of their constant rebellion and disbelief in God's goodness, the Lord had remained merciful by not destroying them all and providing for all their needs. Between chapters 19 and 20, there was a 37-year gap where nothing notable happened for the children of Israel. Miriam died, and the people complained again for lack of water. Moses, being angry, struck the rock twice with his staff when God had commanded him to only speak to the rock. Because of this, Moses would not be entering into the promised land. It is here we join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 20, verse 14. After wandering around in circles for 37 years, Israel's right back at the southern edge of the promised land. That's where we left them, last saw them. 37 years go by between chapter 19 and chapter 20. What's interesting, though, they're right back at the spot where they were going to invade, but they're not going to conquer the land from that path this time. Miriam has died at the beginning of chapter 20. Aaron's going to die at the end of chapter 20. And even the rest of that generation still needs to die off. And so God's going to take them on a different route of invasion. They're going to come in from the east side where they hit Jericho. Jericho first across the Jordan. But there is a small problem with that route because it passes through the heart of four nations, the Edomites, Moabites, the Amorites, and those of Bashan. And bringing an army of over two million people by just saying, hey, we're just passing through everybody's not probably going to fly. Going and doing so without permission and treaties and all that sorts of stuff would look like an invasion. As we see Israel deal with some setbacks from those problems, may we learn ourselves how to properly deal with different setbacks in our lives. So chapter 20, verse 14, you have to realize also that Moses has already experienced a very personal setback because he's not going to get to go into the promised land now because of his failure in striking the rock and letting the people think that God was angry with them. So, I mean, this has been a, not a high moment of Israel's history from their circumstances. So chapter 20, we pick it up in verse 14. This is right after Moses' failure there at Kadesh. And so it says, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. He said this, thus says your brother Israel, you know all the travel that has befallen us, how our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and has brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of your border. Let us pass, I pray you, through your country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand nor to the left until we have passed through your borders." But Edom said unto him, You shall not pass by me, lest I come out against you with the sword. And the children of Israel said unto him, But we will go by the highway. And if I and my cattle drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. I will only, without doing anything else, go through on my feet. But he said, You shall not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border, wherefore Israel turned away from him. Here we see setback number one, which is a disappointed hope. The easiest trek is to go right through the King's Highway, which it goes right through Edom and then travels north and south. That was the easiest route to where God wanted to take them. Edomites are not just strangers. Remember, Edom is 
the nation is the descendants of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob, whose name is Israel. So this is family to an extent. They didn't exactly get along real well, but the idea is they are family. And so that's where Moses sends messengers and says, hey, your brother Israel, we are family here. Can we just pass through? We're not your enemies. We mean you no harm. We are on the uttermost of your borders, he says in verse 16, Kadesh. That means the edge. Kadesh is a little bit further than the edge, but the idea was as they were on the move towards their borders, hoping to take this highway. Now, the King's Highway was the major Transjordan highway from Damascus to Arabia. And again, it's the most obvious route to take. And Moses' request is reasonable. He makes it clear that they have no quarrel with Edom, nor any designs on their land. He also makes it clear that, hey, if we, by mistake, drink anything or eat anything, we will pay for it, okay? I think that's interesting because Moses is recognizing that God gave that land to Esau. The land that was given to them by Isaac was the promised land, but this was given to Esau by Isaac as well when he blessed Esau. Edom, however, is not open to the idea. All they can see is invasion. You're going to take this from us. And so they reject it. And they actually, when Israel's messengers try to reason with them, they bring their army right to the borders and say, if you come in here, we're going to fight you. This whole experience became a deep source of bitterness between Israel and Edom. And they will become enemies for the entirety of their existence. They will fight with Israel when they get into the promised land. In fact, as we, if the Lord tarries and we get to 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we're going to see the battles that are fought between the Israelites and the Edomites. And later on, when the Babylonians actually conquer Judea, the Edomites, Israelites are fleeing to Edom for safety. And the Edomites report to the Babylonians and tell them where they are. And these people are killed. And so that only increases the hatred that they have for each other. And God, of course, has to deal with Edom because of that, because they weren't merciful to their kinsmen. One of the minor prophets, I don't remember which one, is against Edom. And so it's a whole prophecy just against them in judgment for their behavior. And that's interesting because, you know, when we deal with disappointed hope, do you and I get bitter at God or at others when a door is shut on us? I struggle with this, not so much with God, but with people when I think people get in the way. I remember we're trying to adopt and we've been trying to do that for a long time. There was a door that was open to us and we really thought this was it. And this was just about a year ago, I think. And some of you guys were praying for this situation and this little girl we wanted to adopt. And it turned out the mom, we didn't know this. She could have been anywhere in the United States. She lived 10 miles from us. And so we thought, oh, okay, what's the big deal about that? But again, could you imagine if you gave your daughter up for adoption and you bumped into her again? And she was mortified at that idea. But I grew very bitter and I thought, we're a good family. We love this little girl. What's wrong with you? You know, but it was a closed door and we should not do that because ultimately the Lord is the one who opens and shuts doors, right? Truly, ultimately, even if we're not actively being bitter at him, that's really what we are. Do we get bitter at God and at others when a door is shut on us? Or do we trust that the Lord is still the Lord and that his love for us hasn't failed? You know, we just sang about it, right? It's easy to do it tonight. How about when the plumbing breaks the next day? God, where are you? Do you love me? You just sang it yesterday. What changed? A pipe? But that's how we get, don't we? I mean, maybe you don't, but I do. Crisis comes up and everything I just sang the next previous day goes out the window emotionally. And that's the place really where our, our, our faith meets our feet. Do we take it and put it practically into our trials? You're going to experience disappointed hopes. I mean, maybe you haven't experienced much of that. I haven't experienced much of that in my life. I've had a really good life. But all of us are going to experience disappointed hopes at some point. Are we going to trust the Lord that he hasn't failed and his love hasn't failed for us? Or are we going to get bitter? This situation means that Israel has to take the long, treacherous journey through the hills and around Edom. So in verse 22 here, we see the children of Israel 
Even the whole congregation, this is kids, elderly folks, everybody. It's just they journeyed from Kadesh and they came to Mount Hor. So they're going to come toward that border of Edom and then they're going to go south. The route they took, they came out of Egypt and then they came up to Ezion Geber, which is a port city on the Gulf of Aqaba. That's where they have to go now. They're coming straight down that valley where it says Arabah, the Rift Valley. That's, they're at the top of it at just by Beersheba and the Dead Sea right now. They're going to have to come down that valley and then go all around the right side of Edom, the east side of Edom. And it's all treacherous mountains. If you come with Israel to us, we're going to go down to the Dead Sea. It's called the Dead Sea because it doesn't have an outlet and it's just salt buildup and mineral buildup and stuff and nothing can live inside of it. But the idea, the whole area is dead when you look around it. You look around and it's just, it's craggy mountainous regions and stuff and it's not fun. This is not an area you would want to be caught out in the middle of. There's nothing there. It's desert. This is where they're having to travel with all their young, all their animals, all of their elderly, everything. And they're going to have to climb up into these mountains and go around. There's no highway that way. So that's where they're headed now. Before they get there, though, at Mount Hor, which is up at the top of the Wilderness of Zin there, a little bit east of that arrow up above Wilderness of Zin, another setback occurs, one of unrealized dreams. So it says here in verse 23, And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor, by the coast, the borders of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, for he shall not enter into the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. It's interesting, Aaron is to be retired. Now, that's not how he thought his life would end. I imagine he thought his life would end with them going into the land in victory, and then he would kind of on his own terms decide to retire. But you know, that's not usually how most of us finish. Someone else sets the terms. Someone else decides, hey, you know what? You really can't cut it anymore, so you need to stop. Or or your health, you know, all of a sudden fails and you can't do it anymore. Or in Aaron's case like this, he's going to die. And so Aaron here is going to be retired. Now, Mount Hor is on the direct eastern route towards Edom. And from here, they will head south, like I mentioned there, toward around Edom. But they stop here at Mount Hor because someone else's story is going to come to an end. And it's Aaron's. And notice why he's going to be gathered to his people here. God says, for he shall not enter into the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. Why? Because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. That's an interesting word that God uses to describe what Aaron did. Because what did Moses call the people when he was angry with them? Shall we fetch water for you rebels? Well, Moses and Aaron, by their actions, became what they accused the people of. They became rebels against the Lord as well. And so, verse 25, it says, I want you to take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, he'll be the successor, bring them up unto Mount Hor. Now, if you go to Jordan today and you take the tour to see Aaron's tomb, that is not Mount Hor, okay? That is a different place. That is not his tomb. It's way too far into Edom. It's well within their borders. There's no way with what we just read here that the Edomites let them get that far. So don't get tricked by that. I love what our tour guide would say. He goes, now listen, this is the traditional place, but it's probably... Probably not the place. And he would give us all the evidence of why it wasn't the place. He goes, but you might be wondering why we're here today. We're here today because it's not the actual place that matters. It's the lesson we can learn from it that matters. And then he would share scripture with us, which is really cool. But there's lots of places that get memorialized and become places of worship for the things that happened there. But the idea is it's nothing special about Mount Hor. But the idea is here, there's a lesson we can learn from this. Don't misrepresent the Lord. 
So he takes Aaron and Eliezer up there, and in verse 26, there on the mountaintop, he says, I want you to strip Aaron of his garments and put them upon Eliezer, his son, and Aaron shall be gathered unto his people and shall die. Now, Aaron's not necessarily being stripped of the clothes up there. That's not a big deal, but it's the fact that he won't be using these garments anymore. His work as high priest is done. Eliezer would be the high priest now. Verse 27, Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they went up into Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses, in front of everybody, I mean, this is humiliating, stripped Aaron of his garments and put them upon Eliezer, his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. And so Moses and Eliezer came down from the mount. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, they mourned for Aaron for 30 days, even all the house of Israel. They mourned. You figure they mourned. They didn't even like this guy. They all wanted to take his job. But the truth was Aaron had been their spiritual leader for nearly 40 years. He had listened to their sins. He had helped them to get right with the Lord. And during that time of wandering in the wilderness, all that took place. We don't know all the details of it, but all that took place. And they had learned that this was the man that God had chosen, even if they didn't like him at first. And you know, he discharged that duty faithfully. But the disappointing thing pointed out is his rebellion towards the Lord. And that shows us that sin has consequences. Sometimes we experience those consequences. So here's my question to you. How do you handle those setbacks in your life? Do you go into despair when that happens? Or do you give, the, give God the rest of what you have? Listen, none of our lives are going to be perfect. We, were, had leadership, we have leadership meetings the first Sunday right before service. And we we're talking about, you know, some of the failures that Samson had and stuff. And, and around the table afterwards, we were having some conversation just about people in church history, godly men and women who did wonderful things, but they also had flaws and they had failures. You're going to have times where you fail the Lord. You're going to have times where you disappoint the standard of God. What are you going to do from that point on? Even if God disciplines you and you miss out on a blessing or, you know, you experience some hard times because of that. What are you going to do? Are you just going to despair and throw up your hands and go, well, I guess I'm, I'm done, kind of like Samson did, kind of like Saul did? Saul, how many times you would say to David, David, you are righteous and I'm not, and I know that you're going to be king after me. But then the next day, he's just out doing the same things. Are we going to do that? Or do we going to say, okay, God, I blew it here, and yeah, I'm experiencing some difficult consequences right now. I can't change that, but I do give you the rest of what I have. That should be the way we respond to unrealized dreams. Listen, you might think this is silly. I was 22. But when I got here and I said, we're going to plant a church, all I could see was everybody in Central Florida getting saved. That's all I could see. Now, you can call that naive. You can call that unrealistic. Whatever. But after two years, and there was only, there was two people faithfully coming to the Bible study. There was a few people on the fringe coming here and there. But it's funny, the first Bible study we did, we had like 12 to 14 people, and then it shrunk after that. I wasn't feeling very successful in our plan to take over Central Florida for Jesus. I grew incredibly depressed. I began to think I'd failed God. And you know what? That only exacerbated the problem as I began to fail God in more areas and other areas. Things that did have consequences in my life. What was I supposed to do when I emerged from that? Just figure God's done with me and God may have one great big bang to go out with and kill some Philistines along the way. Or could I say, Lord, I'm 24 years old now and I'm not so sure I can take over Central Florida for Jesus, but I'll give you what I do have the rest of my life. That should be the way we respond to failure, discipline of the Lord. When we have those unrealized dreams, I don't know if we'll ever take over Central Florida for Jesus. I hope to still do it someday. But whatever it is that we do, 
Even if we fail, even if we have shortcomings, even if we sin and we get disciplined for it, my hope is that we're all in this together and we say, all right, Lord, we blew it there, but we give you the rest of what we have. Here's the rest of my life. Here's the rest of my energy. Here's the rest of my heart. I give it to you with whatever's left in me. Whatever time's left, I give it to you. You know, that's the way I think God wants us to respond. Now, the deaths of Miriam and Aaron serve as capstones to this chapter. She dies at the beginning, he dies at the end. They're emblematic of the death of this generation. It's going to occur very quickly as we pass on to the new generation. As we look at these things that signify the beginning of the end of that generation, we also see it's the dusk before the dawn for the next generation. A generation that will obey the Lord and will move forward. Whether you are at the end of your life or at the beginning of your life, let's determine to make the dusk of our journey with Jesus find us faithful at the end so that we can pass the torch to the next generation with joy instead of regret. Amen? That whatever failures we might have had in our past, we say, God, I give you the rest of my life so that when we finish our race and we hand off to the next group, that we do it with joy and not regret. I want to do that. Well, we get to chapter 21 and we get to setback number three. We saw disappointed hope. We saw unrealized dreams. I'm sure Aaron thought his life would end very differently than this. But even still, he gave the time he did have to the Lord. But here in chapter 21, we find attack from the enemy. And that is a setback that I think all of us have experienced at some point in time. Verse one says, and when King Arad, the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. The path to Edom skirts the southern edge of the promised land. If we could put that, if we actually just keep it up there, that'd be great. So that part where they're coming east to west under Beersheba up there, we're actually backtracking a little bit to what happened happened on their way to Mount Hor before Aaron dies. If you go that way and then you get to where you see Arad up there, you see a valley between two mountainous regions. If you go up that route, it is that northern route, northern southern trade route along the Dead Sea. It's barren, but it's the valley itself is a safe place to travel. That's the way the spies went up into the land of Israel, went up to the hilly region of Judea, and that's where they found the grapes and the valley of Eshcol and whatnot. They're moving along there, and while they're doing that, you have to remember, this is the same place Israel invaded. These are the same towns Israel invaded 37 years before and lost. Well, the Canaanites are not very excited to see them again. We saw you guys 37 years ago. We whooped you then, and we'll do it again. And this guy, the king of Arad, he calls him Arad here, but that's probably not a good translation. The word Arad is feminine and the word king is masculine. So uh, they didn't make those mistakes back then. Kings would, did not like to be called womanly back then, even though men were told to get in touch with our feminine side these days. So it's not likely his name is Arad. It probably should read, and the Canaanite king of Arad. That was a fortified Canaanite city that ruled over the villages and towns in the southern hills of what would become Judea. The way of the spies, as I said earlier, is that northern, southern Negev trade route, and they thought they were, that Israel was going to now come up that route and invade. Even though Israel is going to come east toward Edom and then go south, this king assumed they're invading again. And so he says, uh-uh, we're going to attack first this time. And he does, and it surprises the Israelites who weren't expecting an attack. Some of their people are taken captive. This would be the second defeat against Canaanite forces that they've experienced. It could have very easily discourage the nation. But interestingly here, they do something else entirely. Look at verse two. It says, and Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. Israel makes a commitment to the Lord. Now you might be saying, why isn't Israel just counterattack? The answer is actually not complicated. They weren't allowed to. 
Remember, this generation's not allowed to enter the land. This is, Arad is in the land. So if they enter the land and attack, they're disobeying the Lord. They'd done that already. And last time they disobeyed the Lord in attacking Canaanites, it went horribly because God didn't go with them. So instead of just charging up there to avenge their fellows and to set the captives free, they appeal to God for an exception. They vow a vow to the Lord saying, Lord, if you let us go up there and you deliver this people into our hand, then we won't take that land. We'll destroy it completely. We'll give it to you. Now, they make this vow to prove we're not being rebellious this time, Lord. We're not going in there because we think whatever you say, Lord, we don't care. We're just going to go take that land. No, no, no. They're saying, Lord, if we go in to do this, it's to rescue our people. It's not to take any land. It's not to disobey you. And that phrase, I will utterly destroy their cities, it actually means I will put their cities under the ban, which anytime that phrase is used, it means everything there will be dedicated to the Lord, which means it will be destroyed. They won't take any plunder. They won't live in that area. It's totally dedicated to the Lord. And so, again, they're trying to prove, we're not trying to manipulate you, God. They're not saying, oh, look, we've just conquered all these cities. Why not start the occupation here and keep on going up into the rest of the promised land? They are committing to saying, God, we want to obey you, but we also want to get our captives back. Can we do both? Because their heart was submitted to the Lord's command, God granted them an exception. He grants the request in this case. And so we see in verse 3, It says, and the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel. She's making an appeal right now to her mama. Take me out of here. This guy, I don't understand a word he's saying. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. And they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah, which means under the ban or complete destruction, totally to the Lord. It's interesting. It says the Lord delivered them up to their hand, right? This is why Israel won this time because the Lord fought with them. They weren't up there on their own. And you know what? You you don't ever want to fight your battles on your own. And sometimes when the enemy attacks us, that's our reaction. We experience a setback. The enemy attacks us and we don't get a promotion or we don't, this relationship becomes askew or a situation occurs. It's like, Lord, what are we going to do about this? Instead of taking it to the Lord, we just go out and throw a punch as well. And then we wonder, that didn't work real well. It's because we're fighting the battle in the flesh. We're fighting it on our own. You don't want to do that because your resources are limited. My expertise is in a situation has boundaries. My control is small, but the Lord has no such issues, right? He has no such issues. You know, I would ask you when the enemy attacks you and experience a setback like that, do you fight those battles on your own? Do you go against the enemy in your own strength or do you let the Lord go before you? Again, that phrase devoted to the ban or destroyed utterly, the phrase means you're banned from taking any plunder. Everything of value is destroyed as a symbol of you saying, Lord, it all belongs to you. And so they do it. They do it exactly as they said they would. And so this is a rare, bright moment for Israel during those dark 40 years in the wilderness. Do you and I, do we go to the Lord when the enemy attacks? Do we commit beforehand to handle the situation in accordance with God's commands? Or do we rush in to fight back? My very first pastor used to say, Christianity is about making quality decisions. And he explained it. A quality decision is a decision you make before you're in the situation so you don't have to make one when you're in the situation. And I love that. I was like, I want to make quality decisions. And Lord, when someone's unkind to me, I'm making commitment today to be kind to them. And it makes it a lot easier when they're unkind to you in the work environment. And you know, immediately you said, your mind goes, Will, you're already committed to how you're going to respond to this. I don't have to make a decision right now. My decision is already made. And so you respond with kindness to unkindness. That's part of how we battle the enemy is you say, Lord, I don't know what the enemy 
might have cooked up for me today, but I know what you have cooked up for me because your word says I'm supposed to be this, this, and this. And that's one of the reasons it's important to be in your Bible daily because you're going to read things that God's going to be prepping you for. Maybe you've never experienced this. I'm sure you have, but I can't tell you how many times my devotion that day, whatever I'm reading, has applied directly to whatever I'm going to experience that day. I'll be reading something and I'll be like, Lord, I don't... I, of course, I commit to do that, Lord, and I'll be obedient to you in that, but I can't imagine when I'd ever struggle with that or when I'd ever encounter something like that. And then you get in a situation like that, and you're like, oh, wow, Lord, you knew way better than I did. I mean, you think about it. The Lord knew exactly where you'd be in the Word or exactly the devotion you might be reading that day, and he preps you for it. The Lord knows. So it's important for us to be in the Word so we can be prepared for when the enemy attacks. And then, instead of just reacting, we go to the Lord and go, Lord, you talked about this today when I was reading in the Bible. So now it's time to do it, isn't it? And you go, oh, I can't do this in my own strength. But Lord, I can in yours. And so here I am, Lord, I give myself to you. And he'll help you to react the right way. I think it's also important for us to see that Israel finally got it right. Because it means we should never give up on people. Even if they're stubborn. Even if they keep making the wrong choices. Because God is still at work and who knows if they'll make a better choice this time, Right? You don't know. Their story's not written yet. I have to tell myself that sometimes with people. Say, their story's not finished yet. Israel's story wasn't finished here, and here's a bright moment. So how do I, I don't know what choice they're gonna make, so keep praying, keep loving, keep pouring in, and let the Lord do his thing. Disappointment and setbacks are a guarantee in life. Whether it is unmet expectations or unrealized dreams, life doesn't always pan out the way we think it should go. What seems within our grasp may disappear in an instant, but this doesn't mean God is any less just or merciful. God is merciful and abounding in steadfast love. When doors close, we must trust God. It may be that this is the way God intends to grow our faith and walk deeper in relationship with Him to a greater door. All we must do is trust Him. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Oh,